Okay, friends, Greg Kokel here. Stand to Reason is the show. Uh, my second hour sitting in this seat today. And uh, actually, we had uh, a couple of a couple of shows already with Amy this morning as we did our STR Ask shows. We do that in the morning. Usually we do four. I think we only did two today. Traffic on the freeway and uh, uh, birthday luncheon. Amy had a birthday. What are you, 29? Yeah. <laughs> 29, right? Your 29th birthday. <laughs> yeah, she's now she gets it. She was distracted there for a moment. And uh, but um, so where am I going with this? Glad to be here. And I want to let you know about some things coming up this weekend. Oh, my goodness. So this is the Friday show. I should have said this last hour, the Wednesday show. But we're we're closing out our season in Augusta, Georgia for reality. And uh, still room. We've sold out every event but this one. So there's still room. Lots of people signing up towards the end. And uh, you can still make it this Friday if uh, you'd like to. (laughs) Uh, We'll take your tickets at the door, if you will. Um, The next day, John Noyce is going to be teaching at that church. um, And the church is First Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia, April 23rd. Okay. He's going to be teaching on tactics the next that day, the day after reality. I will be speaking at New Life Community Church in Asheville, North Carolina. That means I've got a two or three hour drive on Saturday night after reality to get to another state to um, tactics in Asheville. And we've got another talk I'll be giving as well. So that's New Life Community Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Tim Barnett's going to speak at Mount Airy Bible Church in uh, Mount Airy. Maryland on Saturday and Sunday, April 29 and 30. So that's the following weekend. Robbie Lashua will be preaching at Oasis Church in Phoenix, Arizona on Sunday, April 30th. Again, the following weekend, we're all going to be speaking at uh, Reality this weekend. So, But the following weekend, they'll be employed there. Uh, Amy Hall will be doing a live Q&A on STR's Facebook on Wednesday, May 3rd. So that's going into the following week. Uh, and that'll be one p.m. and you can visit us on Facebook and submit your question. Will you be just taking regular questions that people type in or are you going to be talking to people? Who knows? Amy's going to say. People type in questions. Okay, yeah, that's the way we do that kind of thing. All right, all of that stuff coming up. Uh, One other thing I wanted to mention is the applications are still open for a limited time for standard reason outpost directors. Now, an outpost is a local community of Christians who are seeking answers to the hard questions about classical Christianity, and they meet together, they're people of like mind, at the outpost, usually in a local church, and uh, they're led by a qualified director, and this is what you can apply for if you'd like to do that. We provide the STR content on Christian apologetics, um, the outpost director helps lead discussions uh, in how to defend the faith, but it's just one of those, okay, boots on the ground, enterprises, people of like mind there to encourage each other and to serve, especially the local church, with challenges that they're facing that relate to apologetics. So if you want to um, you want to find out more about that, just go to str.org slash outposts, str.org slash outposts. Okay, let's uh, let's talk to Larry. He's been uh, waiting for a while. That was a long hour there, Larry. You are waiting on as I talked with our friend Cade, huh? Oh, that was a great conversation, though. Yeah, he's a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you again for the work you do, Greg. Um, yeah, you know, this, you put a lot of emphasis 
on the CRT thing, and it just seems to me you're fighting a ghost. I mean, there's really there's really not a lot there. You know, I I would agree that our children are taught some toxic things about race in school, and we should you know deal with that. But CRT in its full fully developed form isn't taught any in any elementary school or high school anywhere, as far as I know. Uh, you know, the, the children simply don't have the background to understand uh, CRT uh, in its, um, you know, fully articulated form. Okay, they let don't me, have the background in sociology or history or sure. law. Sure. Okay, let me ask you a question, Larry. You said that uh, it's not being taught in any school as far as you know. What is your level of exposure to schools in the educational system to be able to kind of make it's a, a broad generalization? <laughs> so been, what is that? I've been studying... It's pretty fair. I've been studying this. No, I'm asking probably, about your exposure to the educational system and what's taught characteristically in schools. Uh, I don't have a comprehensive knowledge of that, but I, I've been listening to the debate and what people, what people say they're against. Okay. And uh, I agree, there are some toxic stuff taught in some schools. Okay, so... Uh, I, it's too... Um, it's kind of they present race as a kind of a no-win situation. That it's it's here and it's going to be here forever, and you can't do anything about it. And white people are just bad, uh, and they can't change that. And uh, it's fool it's foolish. Right. It's I, uh, it's it creates a situation where we'll never get a, a real equity between the races in our country. If we if we approach it that way, okay. Well, we'll I'm never glad, get we'll uh, never get peace. We'll never get ju- justice. Well, it's in, it's interesting. I agree. I agree with you on that. Okay, good. Well, let me offer a few comments here. Um, uh, it's interesting. On the one hand, you say, "Well, this isn't really being taught. If it were, we'd never get anywhere." By that method, but that isn't what's going on, and I think CRT. Going, it goes on a little bit. A little bit, okay. Yeah. I, I asked the question because I am not an expert in this area. I don't go deep in this area, but I know people who do. In fact, I know somebody who is a uh, a, a a principal of a very large educational district in a very large city, in a very large state, okay? I don't want to even get more specific like that because I don't want to blow his cover. But he writes me these things that are going on all over the place, and they are actually going to the state legislature to try to put a damper on it. Now, CRT, critical race theory, is not, it, it, that's, a, that's an acronym pertaining to a particular thing. There's a lot of noise in the background. Um, yeah, I'm, unfortunately, let me turn off the... Yeah, that's personally, what... I'm in a, a nursing home. Oh, okay, and I sorry. Can't control. Yeah, yeah, gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. A lot of noise. Okay, super. On. So, but so CRT, and this is one thing he warned me at. There was a big hue and cry against CRT. CRT goes underground, and it comes back up with a different acronym: equity. Um, you know, I always get this EID. That's an explosive. So diversity, equity, and inclusion (DEI). Okay, and so the same kinds of ideas are being taught 
under a different rubric. Now, you mentioned race, like critical race theory. Well, critical theory is broader, and race is one slice of that. And the big problem isn't just critical race theory, it's critical theory. And critical theory is all over the place, okay? One characteristic of critical theory is uh, oppression by ideology. Okay, so is there oppression? Sure. Where's the oppression? Well, the oppression is when people can't get jobs that they're qualified for, or people want to purchase something in a store, they won't let them in, or people are actually um, uh, arrested for something they didn't do. Notice these are all acts of oppression against the person. Okay, those are examples of oppression. But the definition of oppression has changed now, and this is obvious everywhere, that if you disagree with a view, now it is your ideology that is doing the oppression. That's part of critical theory. And this poor gal that was, you know, boarded up for three and a half hours. Well, I'm just telling you, I do I know I that. See that. I don't see that. I don't see that as one of their points. Okay. Well, this is something that I, it, it, all I can say is I can't go in a whole dynamic of the whole history of it and everything, but I'm just offering to you that oppression by ideology is part of the package, okay? And that's why when you have somebody who's speaking out in favor of women's sports for biological women and against men, biological men competing against women, she gets attacked physically why can they justify attacking her? Because, according to the view of oppression by ideology, her ideology is oppressing them, and they can respond with an act of self-defense by physically attacking her. This kind of thing that just happened this last week is not a, a, a stray event. This is happening all over, and it's being driven by an idea that is deeply now deeply embedded in society that is a piece of the critical theory that shows up not just in race, but in other ways, too, with transgender. I'm just using that as an example to show that critical theory is deeply embedded, and it's, and it's manifesting itself in this last event this weekend, but in lots of other ways as well. As far as I can tell, CRT, it seems mostly positive. I mean, the, a lot of the ideas are, are really true. Uh, the idea that race is a social construct, that's, impo that's important to understand. Um, the, you know, the, uh, I think the one, the one thing that I see that could be misused is the uh, emphasis on storytelling. Because it's a, it's, I think it's good to get people talking about their own uh their own background their own uh, um perspective on uh, on the whatever issue you're talking about right right but 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 that is when you get into sort of conflicting stories when we have a, a battle of stories i think that's really bad and should, that should be avoided well the, but the, that's the only part of this whole thing i that's the only part that i see could be seriously misused. Well, and I don't think what you're talking about is CRT at all. And maybe you should just say something like, I know you need a sort of a snappy way to say it, but maybe you should just say something like toxic ways of talking about race and gender and whatever. Well, I um, think I think the principles of CRT 
Uh, and there's about five basic ones here, and I just mentioned one of them. Another one you just made reference to, and that has to do with uh, being able to tell your story, and since you're the one who is being oppressed, that's what's being presumed, the oppressed person, they get to tell their story, and other people don't get to tell their stories because they're no, the oppressors. That's not, no, that is that's, part not how, of, that's not how storytelling works. Well, that's not what I, well, this just hasn't happened. Okay, when they have these. Okay, well, then they're not doing it right. (laughs) Okay, all right. We're going to leave it at that, because I think you and I have very different conceptions of even what critical race theory is, and, and my concern is even broader than the way it applies to race. It applies to a lot of different things, too. So we we need uh, to talk more about race in our society, and for that to happen, uh, people need not to be so scared. Okay. I agree um, with you, Larry, but all the talk about race that we've been having has scared people. I don't think we need to talk more about race in society. I think that's the problem. It's the talking and the way we're talking about it that is creating more difficulty. That would be my take on it, but I'll let you have the last word here, Larry. Say again? Black people are still treated terrible. How many black, uh, black young men are murdered by the police? Many of them aren't even armed. Um, it's still the problems are ongoing. Okay, the vast majority. And problems. The vast majority of black young men who are murdered are murdered by black young men. That's, that's quantifiable right. that's, fact, that's not problem. not by policemen. That's so that's problem. so that's not so that's the big problem. Not the police. But nevertheless, okay, you've had your say. We just have strong disagreements about some of the, the facts of the matter here. But that's okay, Larry. I'm glad well, you called. Well, your point of view isn't even Christian because, because Christians are against racism, and you should fight for that. Okay, so if not, my point of view is— wait, let, me just, let me just see if I understand. Okay, let me—hold hold on. I Just two things to say. First of all, my point of view isn't Christian— because Christians are against racism, which means my point of view is racist, okay? That's the first claim that you just made, and this is your last word. I'm just summing up. And the last thing you said is, now I'm trying to shut down the conversation, okay? All right. Uh, Thank you for the last word there, Larry. I just want to make clear how we're going out. All right. Uh, Let's go to break, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back with some more calls here on Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. A prominent online news source recently posted an image of an abortion at nine weeks. The image contained no embryo, no body parts, and no blood. Is that an accurate image? Find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schliemann. Look for it on Spotify, iTunes, your favorite podcast app, 
or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. All right, we've got some uh, open mic calls here, and uh, let's see here. I want to start with Pastor Craig in Marion, Ohio, with his question about uh, those Christian musicians and YouTubers uh, who are no longer Christian. They have um, loudly left the Church. Not complaining about that, by the way, about their loudly leaving. People can say what they want. They don't believe in Christianity anymore. They're leaving it. They're decon, excuse me, deconstructing it, deconverting. Okay, that's I got. I get it. But he has a question about that. So let's hear from Pastor Craig. Hey, Greg. This is Pastor Craig in Marion, Ohio, <laughs> and I met you back in September at in Fairborn, Ohio, when you were down there doing doing some seminars. And I do not expect you to remember me because I know you meet tons and tons of people. <laughs> thank you. But Craig. I want to thank you for your ministry. Um, since I've been listening to your podcast, both of them, both this podcast and the STRS oh, podcast in the last mm-hmm. year, it's really helped me a lot. That's great. I've been a Christian for 25 years, and I've been a pastor for uh, about. 12 of those years, mm-hmm. um, and it, it, it has really helped me a lot. Great. My question for you today is, I've been listening a lot in the last year or so to, you know, uh, you, famous YouTubers, um, uh, famous musicians in the Christian community who are in the deconstruction process or they have gone through the deconstruction process. And I keep going back to, um, you know, (laughs) to be a true Christian, it's not about making a profession of faith, but it's all about regeneration. And that's kind of been the thing that I've focused on is that regeneration. And as I listen to people going through deconstruction, I, 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 I just have to ask myself, were they ever regenerated? Mm-hmm. I, I, I honestly am struggling with how a person can be truly regenerated and then go through the whole reconstruction process. Mm-hmm. So I would appreciate your comments and your thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. Thanks. 
You're doing a great job. Um, may your tribe increase. <laughs> My tribe is big enough already, Craig. Uh, Pastor Craig, and thank you so much for uh, your sweet comments. And your question's a fair one. Uh, it's curious. Uh, I did a three-hour debate with Michael Shermer, uh, the American atheist uh, and uh, publisher of Skeptic Magazine, and Michael Shermer always starts his debates out with his deconversion testimony, how he was a Christian, then he became a non-Christian. He doesn't believe in God, now he believes in science, is the way he puts it. So it's not just those famous Christian musicians and YouTubers, there are even famous atheists, uh, well-known Amer- American atheists, that um, that uh, also have a deconversion kind of story. And the question is, either they were saved and now they're unsaved, or they never were saved to begin with. I mean, that's really, those are the options you have. And uh, you're never going to be able to come to an answer about which option is the correct option by examining the individuals who made the deconversion. Because it doesn't tell you about the spiritual elements that are the most important uh, determinators of of the answer to this question. And this is why you said, uh, Pastor Craig, you know, is it just a profession or is it an actual regeneration? I remember Ray Comfort saying once, um, and I like Ray. I mean, we've done work together, and uh, he's an amazing, funny guy, street preacher guy. He lives not, not too far from where I'm broadcasting, actually, right now, and done a lot of work with his enterprise. But uh, Ray said he, he gets churches that ask him to come, and they want to get decisions. He said, you want decisions? Oh, well, decisions are easy. I can get decisions. It's regenerations, conversions, rather, is the way he puts it, regeneration, that are hard. He doesn't want decisions. He wants conversions, okay? And that's why he preaches the way he preaches, to get converts, not deciders. People who decide can undecide, okay? Once a person is converted, that's a whole different issue. And so the question here about the conversion, whether it's reversible or not, that's a theological question that have to be determined by other other theological concerns. One has to go back to the Scripture and ask themselves the question, what does the Bible teach about what happens at regeneration? And if the process of regeneration is reversible. Now, my own conviction about that, I I won't do a big theological analysis of this, but I'll, I'll just tell you my own conviction is that regeneration is a is a miraculous um, alteration of of our let's see what do I want to say here well of our spiritual condition not our nature our nature doesn't change but there's some capacity in our nature that has been cut off and severed from God a spiritual capacity that is revivified made alive again that's what we call it being born again being born again, this thing is revivified in virtue of the miracle of God, which includes placing the Holy Spirit in us and sealing us with it. That's Ephesians 1. Having believed, we were sealed, interesting language, with the Holy Spirit of redemption. And in chapter 4 or 5, it says that 
uh, that sealing is until the day of redemption. I think that's the way it is. We're sealed, having believed we received, and we're sealed, and then later on in the book, uh, until the day of redemption. So there is something that he's, God, according to the language there, so how I read it, that God is securing for us, which he secures, he saves, he keeps. That's what it means to be sealed until the day of redemption. If anybody's in, a, in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, new things have come. And I don't think they're like just incidental new things. Well, now I used to be in high school, now I'm in college. So I used to be a high schooler, now I'm a college kid, and I got new things. Our circumstances change, and therefore the details of our circumstances change. That's not what he's talking about. We are new creatures because something changes inside of us. There is a change in the circumstances on the outside. Okay, that's, I think, what he's getting at. Now, I'm just choosing a couple different passages that seem to be compelling about the nature of this event that we call regeneration. And it, I mean, it's interesting, even the language in English, regenerate, giving life back to. So the question is, whatever is given life back to, can it be killed dead again? Now, if we're sealed with the Spirit until the day of redemption, I don't see how that can happen. Now, there are verses that people stumble over, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, other passages. turns out a lot of those can be answered in light of what I've just explained, but it's probably pretty evident to you now. As I look at the work of the cross, as it's applied to the individual Christian's life in regeneration, new covenant, Holy Spirit-given rebirth, it seems to me that that is an irreversible event. If it's irreversible, there is going to be a consequence. That means the person who has been irreversibly regenerated is going to still be regenerated when he dies. <laughs> That's why people refer to it as the perseverance of the saints. Those who are saints, and there the term simply means regenerated person, not holy rollers, not like as holy as you could possibly imagine, but just a regenerated person, they will persevere all the way to the end. And how do you know if they've really been regenerated? They persevere all the way to the end. And if they have not truly been regenerated, then they will not persevere. That's, in my sense, my way of looking, it's the only way to make sense of these defections, given that it appears the miracle of regeneration is irreversible. I don't see any characterization of the new birth that implies the genuine new birth can become a new death. Okay, and by the way, I don't know how else to put it. I'm not even trying to be clever. If regeneration is a new birth, we are born again, then we have to die again spiritually to be unregenerated and be in a lost condition again. That just seems to make sense. There's nothing like that in the text. And by the way, this is my response is not hinging at all on any element or any detail of Arminian versus Reformed theology. Of course, if you're Reformed, 
one of the convictions of Reformed theology is perseverance of the saints. But I don't know why an Arminian wouldn't hold that as well. Oh, maybe I can think of some reasons. But in any event, I'm just simply saying, the ones who are regenerated, and if they're sealed until the day of redemption, then they will continue until the day of redemption, and that's how you know they've been sealed. And if they don't, then they haven't been sealed until the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit, because it was not given to them. Now, with that in mind, so there's there's my answer, okay? And I'm working from the doctrine of regeneration as my starting point. But there's more. I want you to think of First John chapter 2. And if it turns out that I'm right, that people who end up leaving were never really Christians to begin with, that would make sense, that would comport perfectly with First John chapter 2, verse 19. And here's what John says. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Now, this is John. John sometimes will say the same thing like two or three different times in the same sentence. All things came into being through him and apart from him, and nothing came into being that has come into being. John chapter 1, verse 3, you know, trying to make the point with crystal clarity that the one called the Word, who became Jesus, is the uncreated Creator. Here we have the same thing. With crystal clarity, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they wouldn't have, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us, so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. There you go. Now that strikes me as pretty unequivocal, and it fits like a glove, the assessment that I just offered. But there's also Jesus, and this is Matthew chapter 13, and this is the parable of the sower, famous passage, and the sower goes out and sows in different soils, and there's different response based on the different soils. Okay, the first one, and then we have in verse 18, Jesus is explaining to his disciple this parable. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, very important phrase, by, by the way, does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. What has been sown in his heart, this is the one in whom the seed was sown beside the road. Okay, there's no response. They don't get it. They don't respond. Boom, they're out of here. Second one, the one in whom the seed was sown on rocky places this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So now we've got somebody who receives the word with joy. We're into it. Yet, he has no firm root in himself, but it's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, I'm not sure. Um, how to take these words immediately, um, because there's a parallelism here. He immediately receives with joy, and then when things are up, he immediately falls away. I think the clear picture is these people enter in, they come in, receive it, and then because of those other external pressures and difficulties, they're out of here. Then he's got a third seed, 
The one who on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Notice there is no direct reference to it taking root and thriving at all. In fact, he says it doesn't thrive. Someone might characterize this as a person who remains a Christian but doesn't bear fruit, and so, you know, that's not too good. Some would say, well, that's not even a Christian if they don't bear fruit. Well, you can do what you want with that passage, with that verse, but verse 23, the one on whom the seed is sown on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it bears fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. So which of the four seem to be parallel with the circumstance we're describing? Well, obviously the second. The one on whom seed sown on rocky places, he hears the word, receives it with joy, no firm root, and when things get tough, he's gone. Well, that's what it looks like. Now, they didn't immediately leave when things got tough. I don't know. I don't know how to, to characterize that, but certainly, characteristically, this seems what's going on. You have people who are along for the ride for a while and then leave. So what conclusion do I draw based on 1 John chapter 2, based on Matthew 13, based on my general reflections on the teaching of the text regarding regeneration. To me, it's pretty obvious that these are people who are not regenerate. They might have believed they were really Christians. That's why we don't ask these people, oh yeah, I really was believing in Jesus. I was really a Christian, and I'm really not. Well, I'm sorry, but John says that you went out to show that you weren't really part of us. That's what John says. So who am I going to believe, that person, or am I going to believe John? I'm going to stick with John. Um, the broader point is that, in a certain sense, this is academic, okay? Because everybody pretty much holds, although there are some exceptions to this, but if you die when you're a Christian, and you're a Christian, you're going to heaven. <laughs> if you die and you're a Christian— you're going to heaven, because being a Christian means being under the forgiveness that God provides through the rescuer, Jesus of Nazareth. And if you are not a Christian when you die, then you are not. <laughs> then you are not forgiven, and you will pay the penalty that is appropriate for the crimes against God that you have committed. Okay, so we can all agree on that, and that's really the most important thing. It's kind of a head-scratcher. What about these guys? And I think there's an answer to that. Uh, things were going great for most of them, I guess. I don't know these people personally. I can't tell you anything about their personal life. I'm speaking from what the Word says about human beings in this kind of situation. And it may be, and some, you know, did have hard times. A lot of people who deconstruct and deconvert do so because they hit the skids really hard. Something happened. Difficulty, hardship loss took place in their life, sometimes sin, probably, and therefore they left. Okay, well, what do we know then? There were no root there. There was something, but when those hard things hit, that's all it took, and they were gone. That would be the way that I would answer that question, Pastor Craig, 
from Marion, Ohio. And uh, take it or leave it. Huh? <laughs> How about uh, uh, Jono? Okay. How about Jono? This is a question. No, no, no we're not going to go there yet. We're not going to do that. Let's do Dave. And this is the Divine Council question. Is that all right, Kyle? Sorry about that. I tripped you up. We got a long list, and now he's scrolling through them. It just says Dave with a question mark after it. No last name. We'll, well, what? We'll come back to it later. That means I got to find a different. <laughs> We're getting there. I can just read it. We're having a little scrolling concern here. How, you want to take a break? You got it? What do you want to do? Hi, Greg. My name is Dave. Uh, my question has to do with the divine council. There we go. Uh, is that a biblical concept? Uh, it's a view that's held by Michael Heiser and others. So if you could uh, kindly unpack that for me, I'd appreciate it. And keep up the good work. Thanks. Oh, thank you for your question, Dave. We finally found you. And uh, it is hard because we got like pages and pages of calls, and it's just a matter of scrolling through the doc to try to find the name. So, uh, is this a biblical council, and can I uh, concept rather the divine council, and can I unpack it? Uh, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> uh, yes, it's a biblical concept because it's right here in Psalm um, eighty-one. No, is that right? Psalm eighty. 82, sorry. I had my marker on the wrong side of the page here, Psalm 82. Um, and let me just read the passage. It's actually almost the whole psalm. It's a short psalm. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers, is the translation here in the New American Standard. But the literal rendering, he takes his stand in the congregation of God. Now, it's translated his own. Okay, no, okay, that means his, he's God, right? Okay, he judges in the midst of the what? The rulers. Okay, well, literally, that's God. I think the, the gods, plural, like Elohim. And here's what he says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. And then he's, he responds, they do not know, nor do they understand. They will walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and you, all of you, are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men, and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Now, that is the whole psalm, and that's the psalm being referred to. Mike Heiser has written a book called the—Amy's helping me—The Unseen Realm. Thank you, Amy. She's quicker on the trigger than I am. I have the book, and I have done a brief or cursory read. Um, I met Mike Heiser a few years ago. We had dinner together, and uh, Mike is with the Lord now, and he just went with the Lord uh, within two months, not even that, I think. Uh, died of cancer. And uh, I had a great conversation with him. I'd already been familiar with the work, but I wanted to talk to him more personally about it. 
and uh, and so we talked a lot about. In fact, <laughs> kind of a funny thing, he was sitting next to me for most of the meal. All I knew was that his name was Mike, and Frank Turek, who, who was sitting across from me, said, "Hey, Mike, tell him about your book." And then when he started talking about his book, I, I realized that uh, I was sitting next to the author of the uh, Unseen Realm, and so I had a lot of questions for him. I I cannot completely unpack this uh, because it requires me to read his book much more carefully, and I know we get a lot of questions about this, uh, and I'm not qualified to answer them all. But I'll tell you this, <clears throat> the the justification— this is as I recall, so I can't even repeat the argument, but the justification for understanding this passage to be referring to divine creatures is sound. Elohim. Elohim is a broad term that refers to angelic type or divine type beings, not polytheism, but divine beings, supernatural beings. Okay? And they played a certain role in God's economy. Now, Mike Heiser will unpack that in his book, what he thinks the role is that they play. And I'm not sure I bought the entire explanation. But that there was a council like this, and that were, he's, what the psalmist is talking about is not human beings. As I recall, Mike made a really, really good case that that's not the case. And in fact, he said, there's actually nothing that I've written about this that is really controversial. He isn't, like, coming up with a whole new take on this. This take has been around for a long time. Now, what he does with this is, that's another matter. But uh, it seems, the, the best way that I could describe it is that in God's world, there are human beings and angelic beings. They're immaterial beings, okay? And their different words are used to describe him them, but Elohim is one of them. And guess what? God is an Elohim, too. That doesn't mean that he is just like them in all ways, but it means that he's an immaterial being in the Elohim category, but he is the only God creator of everything else, is the way Mike explained it to me. So this is a way of identifying a category of beings that have a function and a role in God's economy, and God is like those beings in the sense that he is an immaterial spiritual essence. But he is the originator of all other individual spiritual essences, and he himself has no beginning and no end. He is self-existent. So as an individual spiritual essence, he is absolutely unique. He is the only true God. And that is is meant to clarify the distinction between the other beings and the monotheistic God of all creation. Okay, so what do these other critters do that are called gods? Elohim. They do different things. And Mike cashes that out in his book. And uh, this is the part where I can't properly... Um, characterize it to you, because I can't remember it all. I remember a few things, but I don't want to give you something half-baked. And I also remember that I wasn't entirely convinced about all aspects of it, but some people are. I really liked Mike, and I was really um, taken with his, uh, his, his knowledge, his thoughtfulness, his careful thinking, his ex ex exegesis, as we talked about all of these things.
And so uh, I know that there's been a lot of questions raised about about that, but there is a classic alternate explanation for this passage, and what I recall is the way he explained that alternate explanation, that this is referring to human rulers. He said that is not possible given the text. It just is not possible. This is referring to angelic beings. That's why they're called Elohim. They're not like gods. Verse 6 says, I said, you are gods. And keeping in mind, in a qualified sense. Sons of the Most High in a qualified sense. Nevertheless, you will die like men, because what they're doing is not good stuff. They're doing bad stuff. Okay, and he kind of talks about that in the book, The Unseen Realm. So that's what I have to say, really, about about that particular issue, and appreciate other the questions that have come in, but I, I, I'm not at a point right now where I can answer those, because it would require me to read the book again and kind of do a deep dive, and it's not first thing on my plate uh, right now. But I do thank you for uh, the question, uh, Dave. So let's see. Um, let's do Matt. Um, it's Matt Berean. Is that his name? Actually, like the Bereans? Okay. Because he had called once before about as a missionary who had to come back to the U.S., uh, and that was really hard for him. So this is kind of an update with a question. I got that right? Let's see. Matt? Greg, this is Matt. Um, this is kind of an update slash question. Um, I called a while ago about coming back from being a missionary mm -hmm. uh, only after like eight weeks. And... Um, just giving you an update that uh, we're doing well back in the States, and um, the Lord has not been slow to bless us, and our church has been very wonderful in um, helping us to find a place to live, to getting items we need, cookware and, and things alike, furniture. And um, uh, my pastor, uh, not wanting me to be idle, um gave me a task to do a eight to ten week class on a topic uh, of my choosing, and I I decided to do one on church history. So I've been doing a lot of studying and digging into church history to present that class that starts at the end of January. Um, my question now, though, is since I've been overseas and lived over there and experienced uh, a lot of hardships uh, with health and the situation um, that was there, and then coming back to the States um, and having kind of everything go really well for us, like with the church supporting us and being able to teach a class and God providing everything, um, I don't feel satisfied. Um, I don't feel like fulfilled or content spiritually, and I'm not sure how to get over that or how to become content, um, to be satisfied where I am. Hmm. Uh, I find myself longing to go back into the missionary field along with my wife 
he also feels the same way. Mm. And so we're going to continue to pray and seek the Lord for this. Um, and we're going to work on, which is mainly my health, is why we had to come back, work on my health. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully um, the Lord will open doors for us to go back. Mm. Um, so I guess just my question is, how do I be content in the meantime? Mm. How do I be satisfied and keep my focus on the tasks that he has placed in front of me, before mm. me? Um, thanks for answering my questions and, um, your last response was really helpful. Um, and the Lord used it when I really needed it. Mm. Thanks again. Mm. All right, Matt, you're very welcome, and I'm glad it was encouraging and helpful. Now you're in kind of a different situation a little bit and struggling with contentment. Uh, let me say, first of all, I'm sympathetic to your circumstances because I— um, I spent seven months in Thailand working in a Cambodian refugee camp in 1982. I was 32 years old, uh, working with Cambodian refugees who had survived the Cambodian Holocaust from 1975 to 79 under the Khmer Rouge. And uh, it was this was 82, so it was like two or three years removed from the worst times, but it's still pretty bad. And there there is a kind of intensity about that environment that can't be matched any other way, except for maybe in warfare, battle, where everything is trimmed down to the bare necessities. I don't know if you saw the movie The Hurt Locker with Jeremy Renner. Uh, I I thought it was a great movie. I've seen it a number of times, but there is this thing he's doing, defusing bombs in Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, and every, you know, your whole life is on the line, obviously. And he takes leave, and he goes back to the States, and there's this incredible scene where he's standing in the in the aisle in the grocery store, and there's like 50 choices of cereals. And you, you get this sense of the ridiculousness or the shallowness of most of our day-to-day living as compared to the gravity of what it was that he was experiencing. And so when I left Thailand, I had the, a sense of that. Uh, I was, what I was doing really mattered, and there was a gravity to it. And then when I was, had done my term and I came back to the States, I I, I left something behind, and, and it was hard. What do you follow that with? What do you do next? Okay, and I, I my sense is, just listening to you, Matt, is that kind of what you felt like when you got in that circumstance, and you're, there you are, right there in the heart of it, where things really matter, and you are plucked out of it based on circumstances you couldn't control. And you are now you're back into this wonderful place where everything's being taken care of you, care, uh, care, care for you, and you've got to choose a cereal among 50 of them, you know, which seems like, well, it's nice and thank you and we appreciate it, but it seems so inconsequential. How do you be content in a circumstance like that? And I don't know, I don't have no panacea here, but I have some thoughts. And the, one of them is, is when Paul talked in Philippians about contentment, 
notice what he said, I have learned to be content in every circumstance. I have learned it. Uh, learning to be content, and, and I will say too, just to be transparent, I struggle with this myself. Circumstances that I face in my life were things that were, I never anticipated I'd have to face, and I am not happy with those things. I am not content. Now what? Well, contentment is something you learn in the midst of not being content, right? It's like, how do you, how do you get patience? You know, you learn it. How do you learn it? By having to wait. That's just the way virtues work. It takes time. I think everything you've said about your attitude, your perspective, and working with your pastor and wanting to be productive and doing things that matter, that objectively matter, even if I get it, you're not satisfied at the moment. It may not be as fulfilling for you as at the moment. It doesn't give you the kind of spiritual contentment that you thought you would have in the plans that fulfilling the plans that you made for overseas missions work and your wife as well i'm, I'm completely sympathetic to that uh, but this is kind of how it plays out we get put in these difficult circumstances that are not pleasant for us and what we do is we learn things through the process <clears throat> it isn't given to us it isn't just okay here's a pixie dust god waves the wand and okay there's contentment oh i'm uh, God's sovereign, everything's fine, He's in charge of everything. I, I think that's true. And I think the more we're convinced of that, in a deep sense, the easier it is for us to endure the difficult things that He calls us to do that we had not anticipated. Okay? Uh, however, it doesn't take away the difficulty. Characteristically, it's hard. In my own circumstances, what I have sought to do is I have sought to do the meaningful thing that I was capable of doing in the moment. To do the meaningful thing that I was capable of doing in the moment. It's great your pastor gave you a job. You shouldn't be idle. You should be doing something that's productive, that can make a difference in people's lives. And what I want to suggest, I'm almost out of time here, but I want to suggest that you see a movie which you may be familiar with, Okay, and I, this is not prophetic or anything. It isn't like this is the way it's going to turn out for you. But there is a perspective in this movie. It's a secular movie. It's called Mr. Holland's Opus, and it's a story about a guy who had one goal for his life, and never quite achieved that goal. And on his way to try to accomplish that goal, he took a second job, a different job related to what he was interested in, but it wasn't the thing. And he ended up his whole life, as it turned out, this is not prophetic. I don't know if that'll be with you, but it, it ended out his whole life was given to this second job, not to the first job. His name is Mr. Holland. He's a school teacher. And, uh, and this book, or this movie, is about his life and what eventuated. It's very moving for me. I'm even getting a little kind of choked up thinking about it. Richard Dreyfus plays Mr. Holland. Does a great job, and uh, and I suggest you see that. It just will provide a perspective, I think, for you. We don't always get to do. I pause there because I think it's not just always. We frequently, maybe usually, don't get to do what we want. 
even my own daughter's raising them and they want this or that and for their future i say well, you can't just move into that you grow into things and sometimes you learn to love what you end up choosing to do because you have to instead of doing what you thought you would love to do for the rest of your life and that's the thing that ends up making the biggest impact in people's lives that's the thing that when you see it happening you begin to feel satisfied and content about and you realize it comes together that is mr holland's opus that's the lesson so focus on the tasks focus on what you can do now realize acknowledge confess admit i'm not content i'm not satisfied i get it but i gotta be faithful and so lord teach me contentment in the hard circumstance that isn't what I chose. It isn't what we planned for. And maybe we'll get what we planned for after a season, and we can work, keep working towards that. But until we get that, we're still going to be faithful in this moment to engage activities and tasks that are meaningful and productive in the long term. And Okay? There you go. Matt, the Berean. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give him heaven, friends. <laughs>